Well, thank you, and good morning, and it's great to be here with you uh, for a couple of reasons. One is because I've never been to Kelowna before, and this is a lovely city. Goodness, I'm going back to England, and I came here and thought, actually, I'd kind of like to stay. Uh, so that could be problematic. Um, the other reason it's special is because this is the church of Phil Collins, and I know you get him every week, and therefore you're probably like, ah, it's Phil. But in the UK, in England, this guy is a legend. He is an absolute giant and is known as an evangelist uh, at large and an incredibly gifted preacher. And uh, Phil... uh You need to speak to the evening service because they didn't clap for you yesterday. Uh, (laughs) Phil... (laughs) Phil uh, was a, a mentor of mine, and he trained me. I was 17 years of age, and he came alongside and trained me as an evangelist and sent me out on the streets, and we were reminiscing this morning, and we would do things that really you can't do today. Uh, but we did it then and somehow survived that, and that was great. And it's such an honor to be here. And it's very symbolic as well, because we are now on our way home. But when we left the UK 17 and a half years ago, Phil and Michelle were very instrumental in sending us out, probably wanted to get rid of us, but the Lord has orchestrated it, so our last stop was here in Kelowna, at this church. I couldn't have done that myself. I had no idea we'd finish up here, and then in a couple of days, we go back to the UK after uh, however long it is. Uh, Yesterday, when I was sharing, um, about two-thirds of the way through, I realized that I hadn't given the warning that this is actually quite a tough message, and they were looking horror-struck. And they were like, oh, what's happening? So let me give you that warning. Um, But let me also say, please bear with me to the end. Throughout the week, I was praying and asking God, what do you want me to share? What, What should I bring? Phil said, bring your best message. I've got no idea what it is. So every time I have to ask God, what do you want me to bring? And I really felt him say, bring Exodus 14, a story that you know incredibly well. For many of us here in this room, when difficult times come and when turbulence come, the verse that says, do not be afraid, brings comfort to us. And we lean into that and we press into that and we take hold of that and we say, Lord, this is difficult right now, but I'm not going to be afraid because you are with me. But for some people in difficulties and turbulence, Anxiety and fear can grip them so hard that it doesn't matter how many times they read that passage, it brings no comfort. They just can't find the hope that they want and they need. And so I want to explore a passage again, as I said, that you know well. And the background is that Pharaoh has finally relented and has agreed that the Israelites can go. They can go. The plagues have come. He's lost his son. He's had enough. And he says, okay, go. But then we look at verse uh, 4 in chapter 14. And there's that line again, but God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he determined that he wouldn't let them go. And whenever I've read that in the past, there's a series of it throughout the Exodus story where where it says God hardens Pharaoh's heart. I thought, why would God do that? Where is free will here? Why won't you allow Pharaoh to do whatever he chooses to do? What are you about here? But God had a point to make. And the point was simply this. Pharaoh was calling himself divine. He believed himself to be God. And God wanted to give a very clear and strong message to the Israelites, to the Egyptians, that there is only one God. 
So I want to illustrate this by showing you a clip, a movie clip you know extremely well, but it kind of makes the point. Oh, you. Hawkeye! Matt, what are you doing? Uh, a little help! And I will not be bullied by that. Puny God. Well, I don't know if you heard uh, the Hulk's uh, phrase when he was leaving, but he said, Puny God. And Pharaoh wasn't even a puny God. He was no God at all. He was a false God. But in our lives, so often, false, puny things can bring fear and anxiety, and it can cripple us. When I started out in youth ministry, I went to London, and uh, I had no idea what I was doing, still don't, but I, I know a little bit more now than I did then. I knew absolutely nothing. And I had a youth group. I was starting Youth for Christ, but they also gave me a youth group to look after and terrorize. And so my my first task was to meet this group, and I prepared my best message on David and Goliath. And I was so excited to be there, and I was so into my message that I was completely oblivious to what was happening around. There was about 50 kids in the room. And as I'm sharing, one girl gets up. She walks right across me, and she brushes my Bible as I'm speaking, And I'm thinking, this must be what they do in London. And she keeps walking, and I just continue preaching because I'm so in love with my message. I don't really care what's happening. And as I'm preaching, I see in the corner of my eye an argument developing between this girl who just came across and another girl sat down here. And I'm thinking, this is a bit strange, but again, maybe that's what they do in London. And so I keep going for it. And then I see, and everything slows down when this girl, the girl standing up, brings back her elbow like that, and her fist clenches, and it starts to move this way. And I stop finally giving this message on David and Goliath. And I go, no! And it's too late. There's a a snap of a twig, which is her nose breaking, and plenty of tomato ketchup spills all over the place. And this girl gets up and leaves the room. And I'm thinking to myself, Oh my goodness, who was that? And so I find out her name. Her name's Diana. And I go to um, meet her parents. And I say, hey, just met your daughter. She punched one of my girls in a Bible study. Uh, What's the deal? And she said, oh, her mom said this. She said, Neil, that's nothing. I said, what do you mean that's nothing? And she said, that's nothing. Just three days ago, Diana went to school and had an argument with her best friend. Now, for me, that was a miracle she'd even have any friends, but she did. And in this argument, she was so upset with her friends, she took out a box of matches and set fire to her best friend's coat. And so this girl is running around the school playground on fire. Diana now is so upset that she had to set fire to her friend, very reasonable uh, thought process, that she goes home. 
She's had enough for the day. <clears throat> Gets home and discovers that she's lost her key. And so she's like, how am I going to get in? I don't know how she did this. But somehow this 14, 15-year-old girl breaks down the front door of the house, gets into the house. Now she's really mad. Had to set fire to her friend. Now break in the house. Marches up to her bedroom and takes out her anger by taking out the box of matches again. Sets fire to the curtains. And the curtains are on fire. Dad, for whatever reason, thank goodness, comes home at lunchtime. I guess that's the reason. As he's coming home, looks up, sees a fire in his daughter's bedroom, runs into the house, somehow puts it out, don't know how. Um, And then, of course, he wants to express his love towards his daughter for setting fire to the house. Then he starts having an argument with her. She's ignoring him. He's running down the stairs after her. She goes into the kitchen. He's no idea what she's doing. She's clearly not listening to him. And then suddenly, whatever she is doing becomes apparent because now she's holding the biggest knife you can find. And dad is now running as fast as he can to get away from his daughter. And I'm listening to this account by the mum, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I have the Antichrist in my youth group. About three months later, I'm buying a car because my old car's died. And as I'm buying it, I get to that point where you're signing. And as I'm signing, this is somewhere else, about two miles away from where we live. As I'm signing, uh, the the, the salesman shouts out, watch out, she's got a knife. Don't know what you would do, but I'm curious. Who's got a knife? I look up, and I see on the forecourt a police officer fighting with a girl. That girl is Diana from my youth group, fighting a police officer. Now I have a choice. I can either... Go outside and say, excuse me, Mr. Police Officer, this is Diana. She belongs to my Bible study. She's a good, godly believer. Can we please go on our way? I could do that. Or I could bow down or just bend over and continue to sign and let whatever's going to happen, happen. I don't know what you would do. But I bent over and signed and allowed her to be arrested. And off she went. And secretly, I was like, phew, she's gone. That night, there's a knock at the door. I open the door. There's Diana. I have two thoughts that come in my head. Goodness, why'd they let her out of prison? And the second one was, uh, I can't let her in my house. She might set fire to it. None of this compassion business that I'm supposed to have as a dedicated Christian youth worker. But I look at this girl and I see that she's broken. And the tears are rolling down her face. And my entire focus now changes. And I see that she's struggling to articulate something. And I look at Diana and say, Diana, don't worry. I already know. I saw it all. I know what happened. And she says this to me or said this to me. She said, yes, but can you help me? And for the first time in my ministry experience, I had to look at that 15-year-old girl and say to her, no, I can't because it's actually too late. But here's what I'll do. I'll pray for you, and I'll go to court with you. And so I went to court with her, and she was sentenced to five years in a juvenile prison because she'd just robbed an old lady and then started the fight with a police officer. I went back to her parents, and I said, you know, there's something you weren't telling me. I don't know what it was, but there's something I miss here. And they said, well, actually, Diana, she's not our daughter. I said, what do you mean she's not your daughter? And I said, well, she's not ours. She was brought to us by the social services when she was three years of age. 
And she was thrown out of a car full of men at midnight on the streets of London. And I don't know what happened to Diana in the first three years of her life, but I do know it went on to impact the rest of her life. And that girl faced pain and rejection, and she'd been abused, and she could not shake it off no matter how hard she tried. It was actually shaping who she was because of how much it hurt her. And as we look at this uh, chapter 14, verse 5 and 6, it says, When the word reached the king of Egypt that the Israelites were not planning to return to Egypt after three days, Pharaoh and his officials changed their mind. What have we done letting all these slaves get away, they asked. So Pharaoh called out his troops and led the chase in his chariots. Pharaoh changed his mind. He didn't want to let the slaves go because they were his they were under his captivity. And for many of us, or for some of us, we carry around burdens that we can't shake off. We are under their captivity. And no matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, it just won't go. And it fills us with fear, and it fills us with anxiety, and it cripples us. And we just can't let it go. We are prisoners to our history and our circumstances, and it's just never seemingly going to ever give up. The story I'm about to tell is a tough one. 16-year-old girl called Lauren told me one day about her story. She told me that she came from a good, godly Christian household, and uh, she went to church, and her parents raised her the right way. One night, she's got a boyfriend. One night, she's in the basement in her bedroom, and there's a knock on her basement window, and she opens it, startled, and she sees her boyfriend at the window. And she says, she opens it quickly and says, what are you doing here? He said, oh, I just wanted to see you. Let me in quickly. And she said, no, I can't let you in, because if mum and dad come downstairs, they're going to be horrified. And they're not going to understand what's happening, or why you're here, or what's going on. It's not right. He says, just five minutes, and he's raising his voice. So she says, okay, okay, come in. And he comes in, and they sit, and they chat for about an hour. And the whole time, she's thinking, what about mom and dad? What if they come down? They're going to get the wrong idea. I'm going to be in trouble, and all the rest that goes with it. And she says, you've got to go. And, she, and he said, okay, I'll go. But before I go, give me a, a kiss. She felt a bit awkward about it, but she gave him a kiss, and, and he was pressing in harder and she tried to push him away and then one thing went to another and before she could even get her head around what was happening she was being raped in her own bedroom and she couldn't scream out because if mom and dad came downstairs they would be horrified and get totally the wrong idea with what's going on after he'd finished his business he leaves and she's traumatized she's full of shame and guilt even and horror and pain, and she doesn't know what to do with it. She doesn't know who to talk to. She can't talk to her friends because they'll just think she's easy. So who should she talk to? What can she do? She definitely can't tell mom and dad because they'll say, why was he in there in the first place? You know, this isn't right. You, you, you obviously was leading him on, and all these thoughts are going through her head. So she doesn't talk to anyone. Three months goes by, and the probability of getting pregnant through rape is extremely slim. And she discovers that she is indeed pregnant. Who does she talk to now? She's let three months go by. 
What is she going to do and go and talk to? And who can she uh, get counsel from? Everyone's going to judge her. And so she sees an article at school, I think it was, which was talking about pregnancy advice. And so she finds that number, and they're so warm and nice, and they say, come in and see us. She goes in, and they are just so kind to her, so understanding. But they only have one piece of advice, one instruction, which is the best thing you can do is to have an abortion. She doesn't want to have an abortion. She doesn't want to be pregnant. She doesn't want to be in this situation. She just doesn't know what to do. But she agrees because they're the only ones who have been nice to her. She goes and has an abortion. And when that's finished, the nurse is pushing her out. And Lauren starts to sob at what's just happened to her. The reality of what's just occurred. And as she's sobbing, the nurse leans down and whispers in her ear, if you don't stop, we'll take you back in there and do it all over again. This girl's got nobody. She's all alone and she's broken. About six months go by. Her grades have completely crashed. She stopped going out. She stopped eating. She's an absolute wreck. And one day she's walking through the kitchen. As she's walking through the kitchen, her mom stops her and she doesn't have a clue where this came from. But her mom looks her dead in the face and in the eyes and says, Lauren, have you had an abortion? That's the only thing her mom says to her. And Lauren's startled, but she's confronted by truth. And that truth hits her like a ton of bricks. And she just sobs. She can't even say yes. She's just sobbing. She's waiting for the rejection and the condemnation to come. And her mum somehow scoops her up and puts her in a rocking chair and rocks her back and forward and puts her hand through her hair and says, Lauren, I am so sorry. And I love you so much. And I'm so sorry we couldn't have gone through this. That we couldn't have done this together and talked about our options. But I love you so very, very much. Lauren had been living with secrets. And her fear was that those secrets would one day catch up with her. And she lived with the tension of guilt versus exposure. And she couldn't manage it. It was just eating away at her and crippling her. Her secrets were bringing incredible anxiety to her life. In verse 9 and 10, we see that it says, All the forces in the Pharaoh's army and all his horses, chariots, and charioteers were used in the chase. The Egyptians caught up with the people of Israel as they were camped beside the shore near Piharon, across the Baal Zaphon. And as Pharaoh and his army approached, the people of Israel could see them in the distance marching towards them. And the people began to panic, and they cried out to the Lord for help. Pharaoh was catching up with the Israelites, and it struck them with fear that they were going to be caught. And I wonder how many of us here might be living with fears of secrets that we've been carrying that are so heavy, and we're so scared of what might happen if somehow they leak out. For Lauren, her freedom came when she was confronted with truth. And I know for some in this situation or a situation of secrets, it's all right to say it worked out for her because she received love and grace, but that would never happen to me. 
Mike Iaconali, who uh, was an author and wrote the book Messy Spirituality, tells a story of a lady called Margaret. Margaret is about 49, 50 years of age, and she um, has been going to see a, a, a therapist, a counselor, for many years. And this is her final session with the counselor. And the counselor says, Margaret, we're done today. This is it. We're ending therapy. But let's just revisit the issue one last time. Let's go there one final time. And Margaret, still nervous and fearful, she doesn't want to do it. But he's encouraging her, inviting her, and wanting her to do it. So she goes there. And she retells the story of when she was eight years old. And she ran into her school classroom late. And the teacher stopped the class lesson and sat uh, Margaret down and said, Listen, everyone, today we're going to teach Margaret her lesson. And the teacher went up and wrote on the, on the board, Margaret is. And then she said to the class, Class, come up one by one and complete that sentence about what you think about Margaret. And so child after child went up and wrote, Margaret is lazy. Margaret is horrible. Margaret is ugly. Margaret's fat. Margaret's stupid. And as she's retelling this story to the counselor, her bitterness and her hurt is just rolling down her face. And as she's finished, feeling deflated and hopeless, the therapist looks at her and says, but Margaret, you missed someone out. And she said, no, I didn't. And, she said, and the therapist said, yes, you did, Margaret. He said, no, I didn't. I know this story. I lived it. I was there. Don't you tell me I missed something out. I know every detail of that day. Who are you? To t-? And, and she goes off on one with him. And he stops her and says, but Margaret, listen, let's go back. Remember when that last kid sat down? You remember that? Yeah, I remember. But don't you remember, Margaret, that at the back was Jesus? And he came up to the front and he grabbed the eraser and he wiped out all those comments and all that was left was Margaret is. And then he grabbed the chalk and he started to write, Margaret is lovely. Margaret is kind. Margaret is generous. Margaret is beautiful. Margaret is mine. But for Margaret, she'd allowed that encounter at the age of eight to shape who she became, and she started to believe the lies which were written on the board that day. And in 11 and 12, verse 11 and 12, it says, Then they turned against Moses and complained, Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? Why did you make us leave? Didn't we tell you to leave us alone while we were still in Egypt? Our Egyptian slavery was far better than dying out here in the wilderness. And Margaret turned on the very person who was trying to help her, which was the therapist. And for the uh, the Israelites that day, they turned on Moses. Why did you bring us out here? We were better off back in in Egypt We were better off as slaves. What have you done to us? And you see, when we have pain and when we have hurt, we turn on the people around us who are trying to help us. But for some of us, we've allowed our experiences to shape and to define who we are. And that anxiety won't ever seem to leave. But the problem is, when faced with an option to deal with it, We'd actually rather be left alone because it's just too much. I don't want to. I've lived with this. This is who I am. I can't do anything about it. 
I have worked with Youth for Christ um, for maybe 20 odd years, maybe more. And in that time, I've held a number of responsibilities. One of them was overseeing 30 different Youth for Christ nations. And with that came a lot of responsibility. And with that came pressure. And with that came what can only be described as burnout. And I remember one day just being hit by this unbelievable darkness and despair and all hope had been extracted. And I had no idea what had happened. I had no idea where it came from. I had no idea how to handle it. I, didn't, I, I, I couldn't connect with God. I didn't know what was going on. And I remember basically just limping home from work in absolute misery, being crippled by what was going on and crawling on top of my bed. And all I could pray were three words over and over again. I couldn't articulate anything other than three words which were fight for me. That was my prayer. I couldn't even say, God, fight for me. And it would just moan it out, fight for me. And I had to still somehow go on with my job. And I remember sat at an airport one day where I was going on a trip to try and inspire the troops. I couldn't even inspire myself. And I sat in this airport lounge reading my devotion, trying to get through it. It was that hard. And my devotion was Exodus 14, verses 13 to 14. But Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Just stand where you are and watch the Lord rescue you. The Egyptians that you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. You won't have to lift a finger in your defense. I remember reading that and thinking, well, there's my prayer. I didn't even know it was in Scripture. It's like, there it is. I've been praying, fight for me. And there it is, a promise that he will fight for us. But it didn't make any difference. I went to a conference maybe three months later, and uh, the speaker just invited people to come to the front for prayer. And I knew I needed prayer, and I came to the front, and I didn't even tell them what was going on. I didn't tell them about my despair. I didn't tell anything. I just said, I need your prayer. And I, said, I just had a name tag, and the lady was praying, and she just stopped. And she said, Neil, I really believe that God is saying this to you. I believe God is saying that he will fight for you. And there it was again. And I knew that day I had to own that promise. No matter how I felt, I was going to own that and believe that I needed to give God the space that he wanted and needed to do the fight that he promised to fight. And for some of us here today, we are struggling. And it's an effort to get by. About three months ago in Colorado, I was asked to go speak at a school. It was a school that had just had its fourth teenage suicide in three years. And as I went in, it was especially tragic because this school, this kid who'd killed himself this last time, belonged to a Youth for Christ club called Campus Life. And what do you say when a Christian teenager ends their life. I was on a panel that day, and there were other theologians who were in there, and I was glad they were there because I can't answer tough questions like that. And I was enjoying the fact that they were getting the questions and terrified about what question I might get. And someone talked about the fact that they were angry with the boy, that he took his life. And I remember saying, I know, it's tragic. 
But the problem is, despair had settled. All hope had gone. Light had disappeared. There was no options in that poor boy's mind. I said, but it's a battle. And it's a battle we have to fight. Someone else got up and continued giving theological answers, and I thought that was a terrible answer I'd just given. And I was sat there kind of kicking myself. I thought, I'm sure I could have done better. And as I'm sat there, a note is passed to me. It's an anonymous note. It's this one. And it come from somewhere in the crowd. And this is what it said. I lost my war. And I knew that I was holding a suicide note. I knew there was a teenager in that audience that couldn't fight anymore. And I stopped the, uh, uh, the, the, the conversation. I said, listen, I just got this note. I don't know who sent it. I don't know who it's from. But let me tell you this. You need to see us. Please come and see us after this. Please come and see us because you haven't lost your war. The reason you're here is because you're alive. So you haven't lost the war. There is a battle still to be fought. And God promises that he will fight for you. And at the end of that time, a 16-year-old girl came forward and she said, I I wrote this. And we prayed for her. And then we got her into counseling. And before I left the U.S. just to come here, leaving the U.S. for good, I sent a note to the Campus Life leader and I said, listen, I've been praying for this girl every single day. And I'll continue to pray for her. But have you got any word about what's going on? And the note came back and said, she's completely transformed. She's changed. She's got hope. She's got life. And why is that? Because she gave God the space to fight for her. The Lord doesn't just promise to be with us. He promises to fight for us. And I don't know what's going on for some of us. I don't know what fear or anxiety we may be wrestling with, what our circumstances could be. But I do know that God says, I will fight for you. And I know with a message like this, if that is you, then there's one thought that's been going through your head through this entire time, which is, but you just don't understand. And you're right. I don't. I don't know what your circumstances. I don't know what the desperation may be. I don't know what triggers the fear or the anxiety. But I want to finish with one last story, if I may. It's a story about when I lived in Cyprus and I would travel back and forth to the Middle East to persecuted countries. And I came back off a red-eye flight one night and I was really tired. It was about seven in the morning and I'm blurry-eyed and I walk through the front door with my coat on and my bag in my hand. And as I walk through the front door, I fall flat on my face. I'm thinking, what just happened? And I recognize there's something underneath me that's wriggling. And it's my two-and-a-half-year-old son. Fortunately, I didn't kill him. Uh, He's actually here, so that's good, isn't it? And um, my little boy's down there, and what had happened was he saw the door open, and he ran as fast as his little legs would take him with his arms out wide to say, hi, Daddy, and Daddy nearly kills him. And he looks at me, and he says, Daddy, this is what he said to me. He says, Daddy, would you play with me? They were his opening words. He didn't say, Daddy, how was your trip? Daddy, you must be so tired. Daddy, can I get you a coffee? He didn't say any of that. He just looked at me and said, Daddy, will you play with me? Now, my son's two and a half. He didn't contribute anything in our house. He never did the dishes. He never did his clothes. 
He never washed himself. He never changed his diapers. He never did anything. And here he had the audacity to greet his father in that way after he's been on a trip and say, Daddy, will you play with me? And I looked at my little boy. I said, I would love to play with you. And with the door still open, the coat on my back, the bag next to me, on my hands and knees, off we went and we played. And why would I do that? Because I love him. Because I love him. Because I love him. Because I love him. Because he's mine. He's all mine. And I don't know what's going on in your world. And I don't know what you're facing. And I don't know what your pain may be. And I don't know what may trigger fear or anxiety for some of us. I don't understand it one bit. But what I do know with absolute confidence is that here, today, right now, God looks at you and he says, I love you because I love you, because I love you, because I love you, because you are mine. And because you are his, the promise of Exodus 14, 13 to 14 applies to you. And it's simply this. Don't be afraid. Stay where you are. God will rescue you and he will fight for you. Our God is not a puny God. And with a promise like that, there will only ever be one outcome. We just have to create the space to allow him to do the fight. And I know that can be hard especially if we're living under captivity, or we're living with secrets, or we're battling with history, or we're struggling with burnout, or whatever it may be. That fear and the lack of hope breeds desperation. But I want to encourage you to hold on. Take comfort in this passage and recognize when God fights for you, it will only ever result in freedom. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you love us so much and that you know what's going on in our world and in our hearts and you know how we respond to difficulties and issues. And you know, Lord, whether we've been held captive or whether we're struggling with just anxiety or whatever it might be, you know us, but you love us and you want to bring release and freedom you want to bring hope, and you want to bring life and light. And so, Lord God, we ask that you would do that, and I thank you that you promise that you have come to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captives free, and to release the oppressed. So, Lord, would you do that for us? Would you bring light and life and hope? And may we take comfort in the fact that when you fight because you are for us, there will only ever be one conclusion, freedom.